You are now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Welcome to Sound of Sanity. I'm Nathan. I'm your humble and host. I'm joined by Ben. He is the preacher who's a teacher of righteousness. He sounds like this. Here I am. There he is. And I'm joined by Jake. He is the pastor who's a master of, did I say righteousness? You did say you? righteousness, uh, actually. There's nothing righteous about this guy, but he is sane. He's the preacher who's a teacher of sanity. That's what I meant to say. There you go. And Jake, of course, is the man whose last name is Mensel, his first name is Jake, as previously alluded to three seconds ago, and his uh, title on this podcast is The Pastor Who's a Master of Sanity. He sounds like this. Hey, what's up? He sounds like that. And I am Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. You know what I sound like? I sound like this. And the other kinds of sounds you're going to be hearing are the sounds of a serene literary discussion as we enter one of our favorite types of podcasts that we do. Sanity Shelves. This is a type of podcast of the genre of Sound of Sanity podcasts where we talk about books we've been reading. So what books have you guys been reading and what interesting or insightful things have you been learning from them? I've been listening to The Black Swan by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Go on. Who Jake's brought up before. Anti-fragile. He has. It's it's really good. The Black Swan is really good. I think I'm a little more than halfway through it. What Jake said when he discussed it is it's hard to talk about because it's there's so many different ideas in every part of it. Like every paragraph practically is a new idea. And I find that that's true. I mean, it's the basic idea of the book is that black swans are events that you don't see coming, at least from your point of view. And it's about human, it's about arrogance and probability and the limits of our ability to predict the future and how we think that we can predict the future because of things that happen, but... Because we have this thing called hindsight. We have, we have this thing called hindsight. And we're, we're ignoring the fact that what has happened in the past is that many completely unforeseen things happened that changed the game. Then we make those things a part of our normal prediction. But the point is... When things happen like that, called black swans, they are not for, that's the definition of them. Like, they change the game. They don't fit into, like, probably the Thanksgiving turkey uh, uh, Mm -hmm. illustration, right? Yep. So you have a turkey, and every day the master comes, the farmer comes, and he brings me food. And so all you have to go on, because you have no context for anything else, is the farmer loves me, the farmer wants to take care of me, the farmer feeds me, my life will go on as it has always gone on because the farmer loves me, takes care of me, and feeds me every day. And I have no context whatsoever to understand that Thanksgiving is coming. And there is a reason that he's feeding me that is I have no interpretive grid for. Mm-hmm. One day he's going to come and he's going to take my head and he's going to lop it off. And guess what? Didn't see that coming because I just had no framework no grid, no way to understand that. And this is a way that a lot of things hit us in the course of human events, as the Declaration of Independence says. Things hit us, and we have no context for it. But then suddenly, after that happens, we have this whole other frame, this new framework that helps us understand why the farmer feeds the turkey. And then we think, because we now understand why the farmer feeds the turkey, and we've learned something about that particular event that we'll be able to predict the next thing that comes. 
the reality is there's a whole other world of things we don't have context for. And so mm-hmm. these things will keep coming. Yep. There's a lot more than that. There's It just goes on and on. Well, that's the way that Taleb is and the way that Tal- Taleb mm-hmm. writes and what makes him worth reading is like he is interesting and dense and thoughtful and he's he's never wasting your time. There's always something more. And that's what is fun and cool, but also makes them hard to talk about. So yeah, it's like you can't really, you're not really going to boil Taleb down to anything. You just need to read him for yourself. You'll find him stimulating. You won't, you'll find him to be never boring, always interesting, always have something to say, always have something worth hitting your head up against. You might not like it. You might think he's a jerk. Mm -hmm. You might disagree with him, but you're not going to be like, well, that was a waste of life or time. Maybe you will, but it's good stuff. Yeah, but, well, at least that's my take on anti-fragile. I've not read Black Swan. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'd say Black Swan's well worth reading. And uh, I'm, I mean, I'm planning to read the rest of what this guy has written eventually. I don't, I'm not going through it that fast. It, it takes some, it takes some extra focus to keep up with his flow of ideas because they come quickly. So it's not something you can listen to on double speed. Maybe one and a half, as we were talking about pre-podcast, and maybe one, maybe regular speed, just because... And maybe not for any real length of time. Yeah, you kind of need some, you need to let it sink in a little. Need some process time. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's, I don't know, people should read it. You guys have convinced me I'm going to read it or listen to it as soon as I am out from under the joyous burden of the thing that I'm reading for the bookening, which consumes most of my reading time. Do right you go ahead now. and talk about it? <clears throat> sure. We're in the middle of gearing up for our big Anna Karenina redux over on the Bookening podcast. And Anna Karenina, if you don't know, is without dispute the greatest novel ever written in any language. And I gotta find me disputing it. I mean I, I you're used to me saying making hyperbolic claims or being ironic. I'm not being ironic. I think that that is simply a fact. It's, I think, especially on the second read, this is my second time reading. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times you've read it. This is my third, I think. On the second read and having read a significant portion of the canon for the first time or again over the last six or seven years, I just, I can't, I think it's inarguable. I just can't find it's superior. The only person who I think comes close in talent but doesn't come anywhere close in the scope of what he wants to do is Proust. And Proust is a godless Frenchy gay guy. And so that's the story he tells. He has a similar power of perception, but mm-hmm. you're not getting anywhere close to the value or nutrition that you're getting. Like Tolstoy, for all his faults, and there were many and anti-Tolstoy people like to make much of them, and there's much that you can make of them. He observed the family and the dissolution of the family and society in a way that is peerless, um, and his insight into human nature is peerless. And he talks, but he takes the same subjects that everybody else talks about. Unlike someone like Bruce, he takes the same subjects that everyone else talks about. You know, he's writing Anna Karenina, of course, is famously about an adulterous affair. You know, how many books have been written about that. But it's also what a lot of people who haven't read it don't know is it's got a parallel story of young love and young marriage and the first children. You know, a, a family. there's a family falling apart and then there's a family coming, being, together. coming together, being established. And so he puts both of these things in parallel. I think he actually, I've never done a page count or 
content count. I think he spends more time actually on the the family coming together, or if not, it's close. I mean, he's not mm-hmm. he's not principally or primarily interested in Anna Karenina. That's not actually what what you get by the time. And I mean, I guess it says something that he chose the title Anna Karenina, but there's a lot of other things going on on in the book. It could have just as easily been called Levin, and nobody would bat an eye. Anna Karenina is certainly a more commercial title because it tells you that the book is going to be about adultery and that makes you want to read it as opposed to it's about a farmer who marries somebody that's not like that doesn't make you want to read it yeah but um he is a peerless observer and describer of human nature and as we've said before he will be in a scene where you know it'll be a simple scene where a guy comes to deliver some wood to someone's house and so you've got like the master of the house and the servant and the guy delivering the wood and the horse and he's going to give you the perspective and thoughts and entire worldview of the master of the house the servant the guy delivering the wood and the horse it's just like he wants you to see everything everything and understand and have empathy for everybody and not in a way that cheapens the morality of his world building not in a way that says well i have empathy for anna therefore she's a victim therefore nothing that she does is evil the little epigraph at the beginning of the novel is from the scriptures vengeance mine i will repay says the lord and anna pays she does she does he's able his his understanding of the world extends to a moral understanding of the world in a way that's edifying and rare. And rare. The way that he actually does the sex scene in the novel is just wonderful. You, you, it's, it's basically he, he cuts to it after the fact and describes Tells you without ever telling you. Right. And it's really shocking when it happens because you've been leading up to it and then it just kind of happens. It just ha- and then it something you're reading. It's like, over, yeah. but you're reading the aftermath and the after effects. And he does it without being. And it's brutal. Without being pornographic, without being salacious. You know, there's nothing. It's just brutal and devastating. It's just brutal and devastating. I think the thing that you'll get from Tolstoy if you read him is he has a real. So I don't have an example offhand from Tolstoy, but there's another stupid book I like. It's called The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. And Shirley Jackson has a sentence that's always stuck with me. I think I've talked about it somewhere before on a podcast, probably the booking. But it's this guy is picking out people. He's a professor and he's picking out people to go be part of his haunted house experiment. And it's, it's, the sentence is not, he was a careful man and therefore he made such and such selections of people. It says, because he thought of himself as a careful man, he made such and such selections of people. And that actually is a good way of encapsulating the basic insight that Tolstoy has into human nature, which is just that it's not always about who we are. It's about how we think about who we are. It's right. about the stories we tell <clears throat> ourselves yeah, so many so so many of our decisions are based not on who we are, but on who we tell ourselves we are, who we perceive ourselves to be. So the filter that if you observe yourself or observe other people enough that you'll see people using is not what do I like, mm-hmm. but what would a person like me like, or the person that I want to be perceived as like. And my illustration of this is that I like to use is. There's a billboard. This is just the conversation that I had with my son about this as we were driving actually to Michigan on a family vacation. There's a billboard about uh, Yingling as we're approaching the 4th of July 
having camouflage cans. And my son's like, it's the can. It's not the beer. Who cares? Mm-hmm. And I was just trying to explain to him, like the whole point of why you would advertise a camouflage can is not because it changes anything about the beer, but it says something about you. Am I the, am I the kind of person who wants to identify with a camouflage can? Do I, what does that symbolize and what does that represent? What does that say about me? Do I want, how do I want people to see me? I want people to see me holding the camouflage thing because it says something about me as sort of a, a blue collar, redneck, camo, gun toting man, you know, whatever it is, pro country, you know, pro military, pro police, whatever it is. It's, it's about how I signal who I think I am or who I want you to perceive me to be as a part of this. And it's all of that is wrapped up into this billboard for beer in a can that is camouflaged. But that's just, you know, the beauty of, of, of a Tolstoy, the beauty of that line is you get so much reality packed into just this little passing observation. Mm-hmm. And Tolstoy is just like that. And you want to say every paragraph. He really is. And they're just like, it's celebs this way in his sort of philosophical intellectual writing. And there are very few people that are like that ever. And there are very few books that are worth rereading. You know, there are books that you can, if you've read the first chapter, you've read the whole book, right? And you read it for the plot and whatever, or you read it because you want to get the one big idea to hang your hat on. Mm-hmm. Malcolm Gladwell is the master of writing those books. Yeah, and you should never read Malcolm Gladwell because he's a. There are better things to 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 read, but but that's you know Malcolm Gladwell has a big idea. Often his big idea is founded on junk, but then he just bloviates about. I just used a word that I vowed to never use about his junk science. Mm-hmm. You know, for a whole book, and he's a compelling and interesting writer. He's a very mm-hmm. talented writer, and so was really. Uh, you know, crisp, clean prose. And so it's interesting and you read it and you feel like you've read or learned something and you're now smarter because you've read somebody. But really, it's just a waste of life. Mm -hmm. You get the one big idea and then you go back and you see, well, is this actually, does this actually hold up or not? And if it does, well, great. You've got the one great idea. And lots of books are that way. Not worth really reading and not worth, certainly not coming back to on a second read. And lots of fiction is that way. Mm -hmm. Not worth coming back to on the, for a second time, which begs the question, was it worth reading in the first place? Mm-hmm. But both Taleb from a sort of intellectual, philosophical standpoint, Tolstoy from a, a narrative, you know, observational truth standpoint are like, man, they hold up and they're just dense, rich, mm-hmm. rich with insight, rich with observations that you just, you miss on your first time and you come back and it's just, there's always, there's something in every paragraph that, you know, is worth it. Even if you have the patience, the Russian politics sections, which are the places where you're like, well, I don't know. I think yes, that mostly I don't, but I, I think, think that if he default is with me, not Tolstoy, I think it might be better if he had cut that out, but you know, whatever. Yeah. You, you, A delightful example of that, of, of the way that Tolstoy sees the kind of stories we tell ourselves from Anna Karenina, me and Jake were just talking about it this morning. There's like maybe a couple hundred pages from the point of view of this young man who's been jilted by the young woman that he right. he asked. And so he goes home and he asked her to marry him. She turned him down. He goes home. He decides he's going to be a man of the people. We just follow him as he tries to shake off the idea from, that he was he ever in love with her. He cope after cope yeah. after cope after cope. 
And if you're not like, if you don't understand the psychology of what's happening, you're just like, why are we following this guy around as he's trying to perfect his farm? Or why, why, or as he goes hunting or as he travels to go hunting at some other buddies and, and gets in this big fight about politics. And why is he, why are we following all of this? And now he's going to try to write a book. And mm-hmm. Now he's got this idealized I- idea of the peasants that he, that work on his farm, the serfs and he thinks they're great, and he's going to marry a surf girl because that's what all he needs. He's trying to do is separate himself emotionally from the fact that he is head over heels in love with this girl who's jilted him, mm-hmm. and he had this whole idea of life and family, and he can't imagine a life in a family, real life and real family, without her. And so it's like this—he's trying to reconstruct his reality around all these conceptual ideas of how things are or could be, and. And, and, and then he sees her. Totally puts you through all that. And then, and it is probably a couple hundred pages. I mean, interspersed with other things, but you live there for a long time in the book. It takes up a lot of narrative real estate. And then one day the girl who by this time is still single and has been jilted by the other person she thought she was going to be in love with crosses paths with him. And it's like everything that he's all this whole house of cards that he spent comes crashing down in one second he's like oh she's hot yeah and I, i'm still interested and, and all this stuff that i've been doing has just been playing around trying to avoid the inevitable reality that and it's so true to life I am, I, me and jake were both telling stories from our lives where the exact same thing happened i mean in my life i spent a whole summer saying i'm not in love with meredith i don't like meredith she's pretentious she's stupid not interested not cool telling people like literally going saying hey jake not interested it was all just a, a sham that anyone probably... I don't see why people think we would be a good match for each other. I right. can't imagine anybody I would like to be with less. Right. And I'm sure everybody was like, Nathan, the fact that you uh, are protesting so much uh, maybe says something there, you idiot. But, and then I had one interaction where it was like, oh, she's sweet, she's available. I mean, and it was literally like a five-minute interaction Though, though everything that I'd been constructing in my head for an entire summer crashed down and I was head over heels and all I wanted to do was get the girl and, and then by God's grace, I did. Tolstoy understands that kind of thing. He lets you live through the whole thing in detail. He's just, uh, he's just, he is, I keep saying the word peerless, which is maybe a kind of stupid, pretentious word, but he really, there, there is no one else that does it. Like he does. The great psychological novelists and playwrights and screenwriters do not come close. Shakespeare, great, doesn't come close. Jane Austen, love her to death, doesn't come close. Pains me to say it. It's just not even close. Dostoevsky doesn't even understand humans. He just has his little existential puppets. (laughs) I think that's right. And uh, anyone else that you might, uh, and people who don't understand humans, Love Dostoevsky. And yes, I'm talking to you. That's right. You know who you are. You're the person listening who likes Dostoevsky. <laughs> you like puppets. You like little puppet plays. Listen to the booking for an extended discussion of this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You're, you're making me want to put up a defense of Dostoevsky, which I, which I have no desire to do. If you do that, then I'll say you like Puppets, <laughs> your little existential <laughs> puppets dancing around, putting on a play for you, go Ben. Read some Dostoevsky and bring back a defense. Hey, in his defense, he thought he was gonna die. Dostoevsky, the poor man, went through some stuff. And I don't know. I like the Grand Inquisitor as much as anybody. 
it's a parable for human depravity or something. I don't like Dostoevsky at all. But you want to put up a defense? <laughs> <laughs> Did I want to? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's an example of a place where I'm being needlessly provocative and I don't exactly believe what I'm saying, folks. And hopefully you could tell by the point of my view, by the point of my view, <laughs> the tone of my voice that that's what I was doing. I expect you to be precisely calibrated <laughs> to when I am being ironic. I think you do hate Dostoevsky that much. I don't think there's any irony in there. <laughs> I'm calling it. I tried to jump out of the plane with a parachute, and Ben was like, nope, I'm gunning down your parachute. Your parachute Fall is into an, the trees. It's an anvil. <laughs> it's an anvil, <laughs> Like yeah. in Looney Tunes. <laughs> and I just hold up, held up a sign that said, yipes, and then went <laughs> flying down into the gorge. The gorge of my true feelings on Dostoevsky. Ah, you know what? Am I really an ironist or do I just <laughs> think of myself an, ir- an ironist and that's what makes me act like this? Who knows? Tolstoy would. Dostoevsky. He'd be like, that's eh, all a metaphor for the religious experience. Oh, I'm so deep. Anyway. <laughs> so who, who's the actual second to Tolstoy in terms of insight, even if they never wrote a novel that was anywhere? Well, you said Proust, Proust but besides him, uh, gotta be someone else. I, I would say Shakespeare, sure. That's an easy one. Jane Austen... I think Jane Austen actually equals him in insight, but the purview of her world was so small Hmm. and she had the humility to never want to venture outside of it. What she focuses her laser focus on, she sees, she penetrates maybe Hmm. more completely than Dostoevsky penetrates, or than, well, certainly Dostoevsky more more completely than Tolstoy penetrates, but but she only has one topic and she only has Hmm. a limited world that she lived in dostoevsky was or, ah, tolstoy tolstoy was a nobleman he moved in different circles he knew different people he had he was able to observe he knew the world he knew the world yeah i think that does give him an edge and i don't know who else i mean i think that i really don't there's you just think non-pareil i, I think so i mean I, he, he is a singular talent and unfortunately he only wrote two great novels and a great novella short story, which the booking has not yet done, which is the death of Ivan Ilyich. But yeah, I mean, I wish, I wish he, his third novel, which I've not read was supposed to be as good, hmm. but it's not because he sucked and decided he'd rather get into weird pseudo religion. He, he became like one of his crummy characters that mm-hmm. go into the weeds and never return. But Anna Karenina is a wonderful novel, and everyone should read it. I don't necessarily recommend it if you're 12 year old. It is a comprehensive view of the adult world that takes into account such things as sexuality. I don't think it's at all salacious or anything like that. But no, but you need to you need to have lived a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the other things that's fun about it, uh, coming back to it, like any like any truly great work, it ages with you. Mm-hmm. And so it matures with you and it has something mm-hmm. to say to you as you mature and come back to it a different person, find it to be a different book. Mm-hmm. Anna Karenina, this is my experience with the disco around where it's like, well, I've matured around this book, but I come back to it and it's like reading a new book, but it's the same. And I love it. Mm. It's just fantastic. And a testament to its sort of universality where, you know, I think when it comes to Dostoevsky, there there may be somebody who who uh, is a longtime listener who read Do- Do- Dostoevsky maybe in high school and maybe feel like they got a lot out of it, and and I'm sure that you did, and I would say, well, 
if you go back to Dostoevsky now with your current level of maturity rather than your high school maturity, mm-hmm. I don't know that you're gonna, I think that you might find yourself agreeing with us that Dostoevsky mm-hmm. doesn't really hold up. Mm-hmm. He had something to say to a certain level of maturity that you have, that you had at a particular point in time, and that's it, that's as far as it goes. But Tolstoy, on a, on a totally different playing field. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I can find myself just a little bit for another 30 seconds, Dostoevsky wrote parables, and I don't generally like parables when they're not spoken by our Lord and Savior. It's just true that his characters all stand for things, and they act in weird ways that humans don't act, such that they can stand for whatever the big idea that they stand for. And that's my least favorite kind of novel. Ayn Rand did it. I can't stand her. I mean, not it's not, it's not just her politics. It's like, oh, yeah, everything about it. It's like this guy is behaving like no one would ever behave. He's doing things no one would ever do because he represents her philosophy of what's what's the Anne Rhine's thing? Ethical egoism. Uh, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And so it's like, who is this guy? Why yeah. is he acting like this? We are not just driven by we, – we as human beings are not just ideas wrapped in flesh. We have emotions and drives that go deeper than – the philosophies that we believe in, which is something that Tolstoy understands very well, Dostoevsky <coughs> does not, or at least that's not his project. And so there's a sense in which me and Dostoevsky just aren't doing the same things or interested in the same things. Also, he is a lesser writer than Tolstoy and a weirdo. Yep. And if you like him, then you don't understand what you're talking about. Um, <coughs> there you go. I took my own anvil out of the plane. All right, Jake, what have you been reading? And and, and Krenna is the only thing I've been reading because it's giant and I need to have it done for our podcast and I need to have it done maybe even before you guys so I have time to process it enough to lead us through a long-form discussion on it. I've been reading Anna along with you. I think think I started before you, was ahead of you, and I think you've passed me up. Mm, Sounds like it, yeah. Let's see. I referenced uh, David Goggins in a recent sermon at Church of the King. Mm. In our little series, Three Isms, God Became Man, talking about fatherhood and sons and uh, bitterness and anger. And uh, so for Christmas, I was gifted David Goggins' new book, and I turned around and read it in a couple days. And, and he is, it is one of those books that's like, if you've read the first chapter, you've read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's kind of fun. You good? Okay. Sorry. <clears throat> So this go around Goggins is older and he's more mature and he's been through more stuff and he is just as impressive as he was in Can't Hurt Me um, and just as broken as he was in Can't Hurt Me and just as committed to not being any different. So if you don't know who David Goggins is, uh, I guess maybe I should tell you a little bit about him. He is the only person in history to complete SEAL training, Ranger training, and whatever the Air Force version of one of those special ops things is. He is Captain America. He's so he was a Navy SEAL um, who completed Ranger training and the Air Force stuff. And he, uh, three branches of the military, he runs ultra marathons and has done ultra triathlons and set course records and finished in first place. He's just like, if you say he can't do it, he will go out and prove to you that he can do it. I think his first ultra, he at mile 70 or something like that, he broke his feet <laughs> and he finished on broken feet. Like he's just like insane. <sighs> um, and part of his goal is to 
prove that he is the toughest person to ever live. And he started in with the negative balance well behind you guys because his dad was a horrible person who beat him and pointed guns at his head and beat his mom. And he had like learning disabilities and was stunted and peed the bed and, you know, through third grade and, you know, stuttered and, you know, everybody thought he was retarded and, and he was a black man living in Brazil, Indiana Hmm. and the black boy living in Brazil, Indiana. And he had every, the deck was stacked against him and he believed it and was a fat guy working, killing cockroaches at night and drinking away his days and something inside of him broke and he decided to become the baddest man alive. And then he did. Hmm. And he's not stopped, proving to himself and the world that he can't be hurt. His mind, his mental toughness is the thing that sets him apart. And we all have inside of us uh, the ability to do far more than we ever imagined. We just are all soft. Mm. And if you are like him, if you stay hard, which is his catchphrase, then you can do things that you never dreamed possible. And he's out there to prove it to you. And he's going to finish his ultras on broken feet. And he's going to, when the doctor says your knees are shot and you can't walk, he's going to get on a bicycle and do an ultra cycling race. And then when the doctor's like, we got to perform surgery now because you really wrecked yourself, idiot. He is going to be wrecked. And then he's going to find the doctor who's going to perform the experimental surgery. And the doctor's going to be like, well, if this works, and it might not, I mean, if it doesn't, you're going to be a cripple. But if it does, you can maybe get back to running. Just don't do anything dumb like jump out of planes because, you know, you can't take impact. So what's he going to do? It's going to work. And then he's going to go and become a para, a para jumper <laughs> mm-hmm. to fight fires and prove that he can do that too. And he's just like, don't ever tell me what I can't do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and... Then, then he actually goes out and does it. Holds right. Guinness Book of World Records because, oh, it can't be done. I'm going to do it. It's just a matter of will. And I'm not special. I'm not super athletic. I've got a heart condition. I've got genetic problems. I've got you know injuries, whatever. I'm going to set the course record with broken feet. No excuses, no problems. It's just a matter of willpower. When you actually read Goggins, it's really about tapping into his anger at his dad, his bitterness, his shadow self. And using every bit, just like uh, uh, Tim Grover, just like Michael Jordan, just like Kobe Bryant, using every bit of negativity, finding, hunting negativity Hmm. to feed off of and being willing to destroy everyone and everything and yourself in the process to achieve greatness, to perform superhuman feats. And so that sort of tap into the demonic, I would say, tap into your shadow self, tap into your trauma. Don't ever pursue to be uh, any healing because that'll make that's soft. That'll make you soft, hmm. right? But use it as fuel, hmm. rage fuel. Powerful the dark side is exactly. And so he's one of those people that sort of because he's crazy impressive because it really is amazing the things he's done and things he can do and the things that he's proven the human body can do simply by force of will. Hmm. He's a hero to a lot of people and a lot of fatherless men take the keys from him. And that was kind of my, my point in my sermon. 
But then I was gifted the book and I read it and I had fun reading it. I read it really fast. Yeah, so that that's the context where I take that. Yep, he's older, slightly more mature. He's aware that he can't do what he could what he could before. But he's also got that sort of like, well, don't tell me I can't be better than I always was. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, I recognize that I can't go on forever. Well, watch me go on forever. You know, kind of, kind of, kind of vibe, kind of thing. Um, that's ju- comes from ju- a place of uh, the same place of brokenness and mm-hmm. and anger and rage as mm. uh, as it ever has. Although he has adopted a more fatherly tone. Huh. Um, Interesting. In the sense that, like, and you see that when he talks about his uh, parad, his firefighting parad team thing where he now see, like before it was just like him proving that he was better than everybody else out there. Well, there's a degree to which he recognized he couldn't be the best jumper out there. Right. But what he could do was coach young 20-somethings who were talented and athletic into dealing with their own fears and softness and whatever and to be as bad as he is, you know, deep down. And he can, and he, and he can hang with them and he can out-tough them and he can outwork them. He may, he may have a condition with his hands that he can't do certain things with his hands anymore, but he'll wear the gloves and he'll do, and he'll be sure that that, that girl d- understands that she can't hesitate. She's got to jump out of the plane and, you know, whatever else. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there is a slight maturation, <laughs> um, but still same, same Goggins. Same old Goggins. <laughs> so yeah, I, I read that one, covered, covered it. Uh, in like two days, um, just Christmas. It was a, you know, I opened it on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Sweet, or, I don't have to spend time with my family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't spend time with David Goggins yeah. instead. <laughs> oh, so, um, next couple days after Christmas, uh, read it as a really easy light read. So, and just packed this with stories. Hmm. Incidentally, how, I do want to say something in favor of. I don't. I don't actually want to disparage books that have one point and then a bunch of chapters because <clears throat> I think there's a place for them. There's yeah. a place for. I mean, I think it makes sense that most books are like that because actually, what a lot of people need, including us, is one point and a whole bunch of chapters repeating it with illustrations. With illustrations, mm-hmm. and, yep. and it's Things like to hold on to. Yeah, you'll remember exactly one point, and probably one of those illustrations will lodge itself in your, your their mind. But if I just gave you an essay that just had the point and one illustration, there's no guarantee it would actually catch. Actually, a large part of the art of rhetoric is boring repetition. Mm. Well, and that that brings me to my next book because um, you know I brought it up as something that I want to amend what I had to say about it before. Mm. And that book is Switched by Chip and Dan Heath. And when I said that, Ben said, oh, is that the Elephant and Rider book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. That is the direction I was too hard on that book before I was like, well, these guys are just taking Cialdini's persuasion and Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. Right. They're latching onto a couple central ideas and they're just sort of popularizing it and coming up with cool handles like the elephant and rider. But really what you want to do is go read Cialdini and Kahneman. And it's like, well, you know, actually my whole job is to take great material and bring it down to the popular level mm-hmm. and come up with illustrations and ways to help people understand it um, mm-hmm. that they can hang their hat on. And that's a really great service. And Chip and Dan Heath are really good at it. And Switch is really good at it. That sort of thing. Just to remind you, I finished it. Right. Okay. Um, that's why I'm bringing it up. Because I was reading it 
last month and I finished it this month. And um, it's just on how people change. Um, they do a really nice job with that sort of thing. And uh, if you want to dabble in that world, I think Chip and Dan Heath are really, really good at sort of opening up the basic concepts of how to craft an idea that sticks, like made to stick, or how to, or how people actually change, or how you, how change actually happens in people. And then if you want to, you know, take that further, uh, you can go down the rabbit trails of Cialdini and Kahneman and the research and psychology of that sort of thing goes behind it. Um, help you understand the way that group tactics work and marketing works and salesmen can manipulate you into making decisions or changing your mind about things and that sort of thing. So finish that book and it's, it's, it's good and it's worth, it's worth time. I think that Chip and Dan Heath are the superior Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> and at least in the two books that I've read so far by them. So does that, and then I've continued to sort of pick at and dabble in thinking fast and slow by Kahneman taking it a little bit at a time, it's more like Taleb, but from a, a researcher mm -hmm. as opposed to being from just like a zany, off-the-wall, acerbic, creative thinker. And I've continued to just, from time to time, binge bits of Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock, and we had to get Netflix to review Glass Onion. We sure did. And he's got a little uh, Netflix series, and it's horrible. It's so bad, but I've watched some of it. Don't recommend it. It's like in the style of like one of those stupid History Channel ancient aliens shows or something. Well, the like the 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 camera work and sort of editing style is like Lego Masters or British Baking Show, where we're gonna like do a whole bunch of speed ramp into slow down kind of like good, you know, zoom pan to. Boom. If we're interviewing Jake, why have one camera on him when we can have four cameras and we can cut to the back of his head and right. be yeah. in black and white? And that whole style drives uh, me yep. crazy. Yeah, Terrible. and then he's going to like, when I see this sort of old guy who's you know, walking in slow motion through the ruins of this or that thing, and he's going to ask the same question five times an episode, like we're cutting to commercial, but there are no commercials to cut to because <laughs> this is made for Netflix. Or could it be? an ancient advanced civilization five times an episode, like boom, portentous like thing that is, you know, it's just like, uh, it, it, I, I've watched bits and pieces of it because it's cool. Like it, I, listening to that book is one thing being able to put your eyes on the pyramids at Giza or some of these sure. places, some of the, like the crop, like the uh, formations that can only be seen from a helicopter and how perfectly formed mm -hmm. they are. It's just like, the marvels of some of these places or being able to see some of these ancient maps that he talks about, like all that, like what would be fun is to watch the three minute YouTube video where it's just like, these are the things that he talks about in the book that you can see now that the images of which exists, right? I, I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. And it's hard to know, like, you know, certainly the, I think ancient apocalypse or something like that's the name of the Netflix series. Certainly if you want to, if you want Graham Hancock's credibility to suffer in your own sight, go watch an episode of that because it just feels stupid. But I still think just like the reason like ancient aliens or whatever, which I've not never watched has some degree of 
of interest and credibility to it is because the questions still are worth asking. Like if, if we can legitimately say that there are only two cranes in the world that could move like today that could move and set a monolith this size. And yet somehow the Egyptians did it. How did they do that? What on earth? We don't know. We just don't know. It's like a mystery. Yeah, like, I, I, we have no idea. I think that stuff's really fun. I think I think that's what it is. It's fun, like right. And that's the way I think that's the way to approach it, and that's the way to think about it, and that's the way to you know go back and say you know we don't know how old some of these things are. We don't have a clue how they did this sort of thing. We have ideas. We have no idea. If we were going to reproduce this kind of thing, we would use like diamond tipped. Right. You know, we would use crane, you know, we would use gas powered cranes, diesel powered cranes that are, that's the only way we can think to pull this off. Like there are only two things in the modern world, like period capable that have ever been made as so far as we know capable of doing this and they exist right now. And we have, we can't reconstruct it. We can't, we don't have an idea. We can tell you what the ancient Egyptian legends say that it, it was done by giants who moved it with their minds. <laughs> That's what the ancient Egyptian legends actually say. Giants moved these things with their minds, but we all know that's stupid. <laughs> I don't think it's stupid. Or do we? <laughs> they made a movie about that. That's been an apocalypse. Did they make that movie? <laughs> the, giants who can make the... the <coughs> Make make the blocks float mm-hmm. somehow, and that's where you get your ancient aliens and alien technology. Or Graham Hancock thinks is a an advanced global civilization that was destroyed by a cataclysmic flood, global flood. And he acknowledges that there are problems with that. Like, okay, but even if there were an advanced civilization, like we should be able to find, like if we got some of the buildings and ruins we should be able to find some of the tools they used too. We don't, we don't have any of that that we're aware of. Well, that's just like any hack sci-fi story where aliens visit our civilization after it's been destroyed and they're looking at a Pringles can and they're like, what is this? It has a face on it. They must have entered. In other words, we have found their tools. We just don't know that's what they are. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that, you know, one of the things that Hancock as a, an investigative journalist is able to do is sort of bring, uh, get away from some of the myopia of certain specialized disciplines. So he brings like just a basic idea that the ancients were astronomers to a lot of things. And then he's able to see things differently than an archaeologist who's like stuck in the rut of why did the pyramids at Giza? Well, we know that pyramids must be burial tombs, but why is this not like a burial tomb and where are all the things we would expect to see? And he's like, do you know the things that you think are ventilation shafts um, are precisely calibrated for this particular star to pass over at a particular, at the summer solstice or whatever it is, you know, like, did it, can has it occurred to you that the pyramids at Giza are arranged to correspond to Orion's belt with precision or, you know, whatever. Right. Which is now, you know, which was once disputed, but is now widely acknowledged to be true, just like everything else. And that's the kind of thing that's like fun. That's fun. 
I like that stuff. I mean, my I have I have a three pronged approach to that kind of stuff. Number one, I think it's super fun. Number two, I think we'll probably never know, and you don't want to give your life to idle speculations. Number yeah. three, this one might be a little controversial, but I will always give Muhammad his miracles where I feel like I can. I I think anytime there's a story of something supernatural that is the best fit, I'll say sure. I think there's that we live in a world full of spirits, full of demons. You know, mm-hmm. Matthew Henry. The famous Bible commentary goes out of her, her, his way to say how the Witch of Endor could never have done anything like that before or since. She obviously didn't have any power, and it wasn't Samuel. It was just a messenger from you know, it's just the way like something a way that God chose to speak to Saul at that point. I don't remember exactly what Matthew Henry says, but it's something like that. He doesn't just want to give others oh, witches, and they mm-hmm. do stuff like that. And to me, it's actually much easier and fits the Bible and fits the sweep of history and fits a lot of these stories to say. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I don't really know, but what I assume is that Muhammad did some miracles. Sure. Was it God? Does that mean he's he's right? No. Does that mean he's extra evil and demonic? Yes. But did he do them? Yeah, sure. Why not? And Satan has his, his tricks and his miracles. Yeah. And the stories of the pyramids it, um, are giants made the things float. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have a... A problem and even with that. Hancock's going to be like, well, we know that giants couldn't have done this, but maybe somebody whose intellect was of giant stature could devise a way that would make it. It's like, well, I don't know, man. Like, giants might actually fit the bill here. And if a bunch of people back then who weren't idiots <laughs> and didn't have any reason to lie said giants, then my working theory is, sure, giants. You know, and that's the, that's the you know where we draw the lines of what well, was obviously a legend and a myth. Versus what could have been. That's where it gets kind of funny. Like Han- Hancock's willing to go so far as to say, well, if we, if we have across all these cultures, the story of a flood, and a lot of things seem to kind of co- correspond to that, and it seems to make sense, right? and make sense of a whole lot of other things geologically and archaeologically, maybe there was a global flood. But if he's going to also say that the Mayans have a story about giants and the Aztec have Aztecs have a story about giants and the Egyptians have a story about giants. But obviously we know that that can't be true. <laughs> right. It's like, well, dude, you, you really are just picking and choosing and you've got a story that you want to tell that you think is cool. No, the real way to do it is just look for corroborate. You know, if, uh, you know, like Joseph Smith, he's the only one that ever saw any of his miracles and they're all really obviously stupid and Mormonism is really obviously stupid. Dum, da, dum, 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 dum. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a problem saying that. Like I'm not going to give Joseph Smith his miracles, but somebody like Muhammad as my go-to example, I'll, I'll give him his miracles, you know, that people saw and were influenced by. And there's other figures like that throughout history. The Egyptian sorcerers that fought right, Moses. That's the one I, was I, I don't think that they were, <laughs> you know, in the, in the Prince of Egypt, it's like, the little characters are putting dot, you know, they're doing sleight of hand stuff mm-hmm. versus Moses's miracles. And it's like, well, maybe, but that's not actually the way that the Bible talks about it. The writer of scripture was perfectly capable of, you know, making it clear that these guys had no power, like the prophets of Baal. Anything else? Nope. That's it. That's what I've been reading. I've spent a lot more time this past month. You know, I go in phases and cycles. I had been, reading and listening to a lot of books, and I've been in a, a podcast or silence mode this past month by and large. I mean, Never Finished was a book that I literally read, so I finished Switch, and I dabbled in two of the books that I, and 
the rest of my time has been spent listening to some podcasts here and there or just silence. Silence is golden. I had a roommate once that never stopped listening to music. And I liked his music, but I always thought that there was something weird about a guy who never has any silence built into his life. It's like we'd come to Sunday afternoon after church and it'd be music, 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 music. There just felt something weird and off about that. Like, why do you always have to fill every moment with noise? Are you scared of your own thoughts, Dave? His name wasn't Dave, but that's a fake name I'm giving him. All right. Well, thanks for listening, Ben. Hmm. You're welcome. Thanks for listening, Jake. Thanks for listening, folk. And you're welcome for all the insightful things I've said. If you want more insights from the three of us and from a fun fan community, go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. You can be part of our discord and that's really fun. And there's a new channel on that discord called spicy questions. You can drop your spicy questions in there. Maybe we'll even make some episodes around said spicy questions. Ole. Till next time. Stay sane.